Okay, today my guest is Professor William Niebuhr. I will keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Bill as a person. Professor Niebuhr is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I will skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Niebuhr is an AIB fellow. He served as the chair of the AIB Latin America and is the current past chair. He has been actively involved in many AIB roles in addition to his uh, AOM activities. He is the uh, AOM's International Management Division Executive Committee member. He is the series editor for research in global strategic management. He also served as chair of the Global Strategy Interest Group uh, at SMS. He has published more than 45 articles, three books, and 20 chapters. He received a silver medal uh, from GIPS. And uh, he sits on the Senior Advisory Board of Review of International Business and Strategy, the Board of GIPS, Journal of World Business, Journal of Management Studies, Global Strategy Journal, Thunderbird IB Review, and cross-cultural and strategic management. Thank you, Bill, for joining us. Oh, well, thank you, guys, for all your efforts organizing this great series. And you know, I'm very, very honored to be included amongst you know the fantastic scholars that you've already interviewed in this series. It's really a really a great service that you've been doing. Thank you. First question: uh, What did you want to become when you were a child? Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, I think probably an accountant or a statistician. Uh, when, when I was young, uh, I actually, I have three younger brothers and I was always a scorekeeper at their baseball games in Little League. Uh, and, or when we played cards with my family, I was always a scorekeeper. And I was really, you know, always, you know, interested in statistics and, you know, uh, keeping track of records. And so probably, you know, probably the earliest thing was probably a statistician. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill, uh, where, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a little town called Warrington, Missouri, and actually it's a 3,000 person town about an hour from St. Louis, and, and we actually lived outside the town. So I lived on the outskirts of a 3,000 person town on a gravel road uh, next to a, a farm and <laughs> very rural environment. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you about the earliest moment of awareness between domestic and international. Uh, where did international come from? Yeah, this is a uh, this is a good question. Uh, my even though I grew up in a very rural environment, my grandmother was a travel agent, hmm. and she used to lead tour groups around the world. She'd go to places, you know, uh, all all over the world, uh, and she would come back with stories, and she'd bring me, you know, a little a little gift like a little piece of olive wood from Greece or something like that. And I think you know that that was my earliest interest. You know, was you know when my grandmother would come back and. Uh, from all these different trips, and you know, it was very different from growing up in the gravel road in in Missouri, and just was very exciting to me. Of course, uh, which was your uh, what was your uh, first or earliest uh, international trip? Where did you go? My first international trip was when I was in high school. Uh, my dad was transferred to work in Japan for two years, 
And so we lived in the city of Nagoya, Japan for two years. And I, I went to an international high school. And this really, you know, expanded, you know, the, the, the knowledge from my grandmother. Um, because now, you know, I was in a school and the, all the, the students were half Japanese and then half spread out from all over the world. So I had friends from Norway, from, you know, India, from, you know, different parts of the United States, from, you know, different country, other countries in Europe. And so uh, this, this was, you know, really uh, eye-opening experience for me. Besides the fact that I moved from a 3,000 person town to a, to a 3 million person city where I could get around by subway and things like that. It was a very transformational very interesting. Uh, how did you choose academia? Uh, I mean, I think it was a gradual thing. Uh, I mean, I was always interested in learning, so I was always studying very hard. Uh, my parents, uh, you know, they, they were very, neither of them, I mean, no one in my family had a college degree. I was the first one. But my parent, parents were very, you know, very uh, interested and focused on education and, you know, as a way to, for advancement. Uh, they were both very smart and they, they didn't have opportunities when they were growing up to go to college, uh, but they wanted, you know, to make sure you know, their, their kids had the opportunity. And so they were very, you know, very much, you know, you, know, you need to study hard, you need to, to work hard. And so, uh, so they, so, so they pushed me towards college. And, and interestingly, you know, after, after I got my degree, both my parents got degrees. And my dad actually, my dad actually got a master's after my master's, uh, partially because, you know, he started, you know, at the, the ground level in his job. And then he gradually got promoted and everybody who worked for him, for him had, had degrees. And so he felt he needed a degree too. And so, so, but, but, I mean, so they, they pushed me towards, you know, getting a college degree. And then I think I had, you know, really good advisors along the way at my undergraduate school, Truman State University in, in Northeast Missouri. You know, my advisor, you know, said, looked at and said, you know, you're very bright. You should consider going on to advanced studies and things like that. And then uh, when I did my master's degree, I was working in St. Louis at McDonnell Douglas. And then I did my master's degree at night at Washington University. And I had a professor there who encouraged me to submit a paper I had written for its class to a, a journal called the Journal of Third World Studies. The paper was on Singapore and Taiwan and the semiconductor industry. And so this, you know, this gave me a feel for publishing and writing a little bit, you know, initial feel for writing an academic article and what that kind of career was like. And, and I think from there, you know, I applied to NYU. I was very lucky to be accepted and very fortunate. And you know, I think things, things continued from there. <laughs> I mean, how do you choose uh, international business as a field? Uh, you have accounting and statistics mm -hmm. coming from your early childhood days, and then there's IB. Yeah, um, I, I think it's, you know, the, uh, the IB part was probably the, dom the dominant thing. I, mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I went to my undergraduate degree, I, I had already switched from accounting to more finance, because uh, I, I mean, to me, accounting was more about calculating numbers and finance was more projecting. And I was more interested in you know, doing project projections and coming up with strategies, how to do things. And then, I mean, really I was, you know, when I got to my PhD, I was interested in strategies for doing business in an international environment. And so it's kind of combining, you know, a little bit of that statistics with you know, the, the international passion that I've had for such a long time. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the combination came from. Perfect. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, besides, I, I, 
both my parents were Marines. And, and I was born on the Marine Corps birthday uh, in a <laughs> hospital. Uh, and so, so this is, you know, uh, I think this is uh, influential in my upbringing, not, not because I was a Marine, but because, you know, my parents, you know, they raised their kids sort of like, you know, a disciplined environment, like, like a Marine would be very, very, very supportive, very, very pushing us to do our best. And, you know, this, this gave me some very good, strong core values uh, that I think, you know, carried forward, forward with me the rest of my life. Sure. Uh, if you stop doing what you're doing today, not that you're retiring or in time going to retire, what's the second best alternative career plan for you? Uh, this is a good question. You know, uh, early on, you know, I considered things like a travel agent, <laughs> uh, you know, or working for, you know, the international strategy department of a, a multinational company as well. So I think the travel agent might be, you know, the, the really fun thing for me to do, you know, to be, to, uh, but, uh, I did work for six years at McDonnell Douglas. And one thing, you know, I learned from there is that, you know, the longer I worked in the corporate environment and particularly in that environment, which was very much driven by government regulations, uh, the more I felt constrained mentally, uh, the more I thought I was being, you know, taught to think a certain way and act a certain way and conform to kind of, you know, a logic that was all built on your know, regulations and mm. this is the way you do things. And, uh, and I think this is probably the final thing that pushed me into academia is I wanted a career where I could be creative and think of different things and explore different topics and not be kind of, you know, in a very, you know, set kind of mindset. Bill, uh, you're very well-traveled. You've seen many countries, you lived in many countries. If you retired uh, outside the U.S., where would you live? If you could pick a location outside the U.S., uh, I mean, I mean, I lived for one year. I had a Rotary scholarship, and I lived in the island of Tasmania, Australia, and uh, I really enjoyed living Australia. So I think you know, that's 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 one possibility. Uh, I think you know, the lifestyle was good, the weather's good. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard to pick other places, you know. I mean. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed everywhere I've been. There's no, no place I wouldn't go back. Uh, but in terms of a place that, you know, I'd like to live, you know, maybe Australia would be, be one, of, one of the top choices. Perfect. Uh, regrets, have you got any regrets? Uh, you know, I have regrets, but I also kind of look at it as, you know, there are things that I might've done differently, but the, the way that I did them ended up, you know, leading often or almost always led to a path that in the long term was a good one for me. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think, you know, as, as long as you learn what you learn from what you've done on uh, your experiences and um, you know, I, I don't have any major regret that I would, you know, just say, go back and change this in my life and take a different path. I think, you know, uh, particularly the decision to uh, quit my job and get the PhD even though it meant, you know, moving into a shared, very small shared apartment in New York City and, you know, uh, and things like that, you know, for four years or five years while I was studying, uh, you know, I, I've never looked back at that at any, any regret at all. I think it was, you know, the right decision for me. Mm-hmm. So help me move forward. And uh, it's been, it's been a great, I mean, I've, I've had a very good life. I'm very fortunate. And you're, you're very successful. I mean, in the end, it, it worked out perfectly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, what are you most passionate about? Uh, travel. 
I love going to new places. I love, you know, meeting new people, learning new things. Uh, yeah, so probably yeah, travel and learning about new people and new cultures and, and you know, the history of those cultures and things such as that. If you could, uh, if they ask you, if AIB asks you, uh, Bill, why don't you tell us where the next conference should be in person? In person, uh, if, you, if you could uh, pick a country, where would you pick? Well, I, I know the answer to that. So the, the 2022 conference will be in Miami, <laughs> finally. <laughs> July, July 5th through 9th, if anybody wants a date. <laughs> uh, so, 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 uh, so, uh, so I think, you know, uh, uh, after that, you know, uh, I like to go to new places, so it's really hard. Uh, you know, somewhere in, in Europe, Eastern Europe possibly would be great. Uh, somewhere in Latin America would be fantastic. I think, you know, uh, someplace like Colombia would be very nice. They've already been Brazil, but, you know, Chile could be a great place for a conference. Uh, Peru might be a really nice place. I mean, a whole, whole number of countries in Latin America would be fantastic. Uh, I miss the conference in Australia and Australia and South Korea are the only two conferences I've missed since I started going to AIB. So I'd be very happy if one of those was a future location too. Uh, my first AIB was Australia, uh, Sydney. It was the best compared to everything else that came later. Nothing compares to it. Okay, about research. Imagine you're stranded uh, in a small village. Uh, people don't know your work, don't, don't know uh, what you do for a living. How do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly and why is it uh, important? Uh, so yeah, so I think my research is a largely concerned with you know, multinational companies. And when they, when they invest in foreign countries, uh, how do they interact with local stakeholders in the, in the host environment? And so, you know, it concerns things like, you know, the reputation of foreign firms and local environments, uh, organizational attractiveness to, uh, to various stakeholders in the local environment and how and what factors might impact, you know, whether someone wants to work for a foreign firm or a, a domestic firm in that, in that environment. And so, so it's really about, you know, the interaction with local, different local stakeholder groups, often with respect to reputation or organizational attractiveness type issues. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, I would also say, you know, it's very important because firms, you know, when they go to uh, the places where they invest, uh, they need they need support. They need people to buy their products. They want people to want to work there to be employees. So they want to attract good employees. They want to attract investors. And so, uh, creating good relationships uh, with local stakeholders helps firms succeed. Mm -hmm. And it also creates opportunities, uh, hopefully, for local local stakeholders as well. So local stakeholders, you know, are evaluating well, like, what does this foreign company benefit us too and so it's it's you know, hopefully a win-win situation where both parties win but it has to be managed and people need to understand how it works bill uh, about understudied underutilized areas in ib research what are some of the elements uh, forgotten variables uh, omitted variables in our research yeah uh, it's forbidden fruit Forbidden or for, forgotten variables is a little tricky because I think it depends on where what type of mindset you're coming from. Often, you know, a variable that's you know uh, 
that's not in you know, a macro level study is actually being studied by somebody who's more cross-cultural, more micro-oriented mm -hmm. and vice versa. So I, I do think, you know, that it's somewhat, you know, based on a scholar's particular interest and, and a subfield within the broader IB area. I think, you know, where there's a need and, and, and it's getting better in here, but where there's a need is uh, to study more cross-level issues and develop more cross-level studies uh, that, you know, realize, you know, and people understand this, but, you know, to realize, you know, IB is, you know, not just about the multinational, it's also about the context when they where they operate, mm -hmm. the political environment, the institutional environment, and it's also about the people within the company and the people uh, in the local environment that buy the company's products, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, so uh, which, you know, studying these different levels takes different types of skill sets, takes different you know, research method skills, but also draws on different theories. And so I think, you know, the part that's, you know, not well as well studied is, you know, the intersection between these different uh, pieces of a very complex environment. If a PhD student comes to you uh, seeking advice on great, interesting, super uh, exciting dissertation topics. Uh, what's the next five to 10 years of the uh, field? Uh, what's going to be the next wave? Oh, so good. I mean, I think, it, I think the first thing I would say is, you know, pick something you're passionate about. I mean, I think this is, you know, you're gonna be working, you're gonna be working on something for five to 10 years. Uh, you know, your dissertation takes, you know, multiple years and then it takes, uh, you know, you, you need to want to do that. And mm -hmm. So the first thing is, you know, Think about what do you want to do and what's going to be beneficial to you. Uh, and then I think, you know, I think flourishing areas a lot have to do with intersections between more traditional international business topics and other areas that have been less covered, such as, you know, marginalized groups uh, across borders. And so this is something I'm interested in is, you know, how do things like gender and race and sexual orientation and poverty uh, dimensions, you know, how does that impact uh, interactions with the multinational company and mm -hmm. who benefits from multinational multinationality and who doesn't. Uh, so I think some of the lines, you know, being focused just on countries and more on, you know, the intersection between the different marginalized groups uh, and, you know, the country of the multinational type topics. I think there's a lot of room for development there. Uh, about creativity in research, where do creative ideas come from? Or how, how did your creative ideas come from? How, how did you publish these uh, very interesting papers? Uh, uh, what's the secret? Uh, I don't know if there's a secret. Because, you know, you think back to that. The, the Kung Fu Panda movie where, you know, the whole thing is, you know, there's no real secret, right? Uh, I think, you know, uh, I think part of it's be just believing in yourself, uh, which I think is something, you know, is sometimes can be very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, part of it is, you know, look, looking at what's going on in the uh, environment where you're working, uh, where you're residing, and looking at what companies do hopefully maybe talking to multinational managers and seeing what issues do they see. Uh, and then, you know, it's a skill set that needs, it's, it takes time to develop, but thinking about, you know, what you need to understand what's been done already. And then you need to think about, you know, what's, what, what important topics are missing uh, or 
what's been done and but they haven't forgot they haven't really touched they missed something you know, and, and what big thing did they miss? Because you know, maybe they were using just a U.S. sample, and things are very different in you know in Latin America or in you know, specific in Colombia. And you know, what what kind of by taking a different lens on things, and what kind of, what can we gain? What kind of insights can we gain? Uh, about the evolution of IV uh, from when you were uh, starting early till today, how? What, what, what kind of a progress do we have? Uh, where are we going? I, I know where we're coming from. Uh, what can we say about the evolution of IV research? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's going through a period now where I think it's becoming, I think people are, there's a lot more research being done on the interconnections of the multinational with these other levels of analysis that I mentioned. So, so, so when I mentioned, you know, these are future areas, it doesn't mean no one's doing stuff there now. A lot of people, mm -hmm. it's starting to be, you know, a hot area where, you know, people are realizing, you know, that we really need to understand the context and we really need to understand the, the political environment. And journals like the Journal of International Business Policy, you know, that uh, AIB created you know, just a few years ago is, are recognizing this. And so yeah. uh, I think, I think, I think a good thing about the IB field is it is becoming broader now and, and emphasizing you know, the connections with different other fields. I think there was a while where it was more contracting and uh, you know, uh, more focused really on you know, kind of international strategy type issues, which, which are very interesting to me in my core, but I think you know, uh, to the detriment of excluding other type functions. And I think now, uh, and, and I think there's a little bit, you know, over time, there's been an emphasis on you know big data sets, and I think that's still going to be there. But I think people are realizing and start recognizing more the importance of uh, you know combining research based on existing data sets with you know research based on other other methods that get more into the mindset of what managers are thinking and how are they making decisions and and the like. Uh, Bill, uh, can we switch to advice on mentoring? And uh, can you tell us uh, who was your advisor? Who was your mentor? Uh, yeah, my co-majors or my co-advisors were Bill Guth and Miles Shaver at NYU. Um, and I, I know Miles has done one of these talks already. And, you know, and I, I would say, you know, he was, he was a fantastic in giving me advice uh, uh, as a doctoral student at NYU. And then Bill Guth was fantastic as well. And, you know, I was really blessed. Uh, what's the best advice you received from your advisors? Uh, I think, you know, you know, at one point, you know, I was, you know, a little bit, you know, a couple, some, some, something, you know, not so good had happened at it. And, uh, advice was, you know, everybody has some kind of hurdle. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and so some people, it may be, you know, in methods, some people may be the theory, some people, it may be something completely different. Uh, and the thing is just, you realize, you know, everybody has this. It, it's not that, you know, the problem with you, it's, you know, it's just you know, part of the process. And, and the key is to get over the hurdle and to think through, you know, how to do it and, and not realize that you're alone. That, you know, there's a support system to help you to get over things. Uh, what do you wish you would known when you were starting out that would save you so much time, efforts, pain, agony? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, I think there's a tendency to think, you know, uh, you know that you that that you're somewhat you're know, illegitimate in the field. 
I think particularly <laughs> starting out, you know, I've heard the term, you know, uh, you feel like you're a fake, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, I think everybody goes through that at some point you know, early in their career where, you know, uh, you know, there's all these smart people out there and they've written fantastic work. And how can I, how could I ever write anything like that? And not that I ever have even now, but, uh, but, you know, but, you know, but you know, I think the, the key is to get over it and just realize you were accepted into a PhD program because you're good. It wasn't an accident that you've got into the program and that everybody takes time to develop. And, and so, and, and realize that you're not a fake, you're really legitimate. You're just, you know, at an earlier stage in the learning curve. And I think this is, you know, I think this is good advice for all PhD students to keep in mind. One of my comprehensive exam questions, uh, one of my advisors asked, uh, write a letter to one of your idols and uh, tell them about your research, ask for advice on how to proceed with your paper. And in the comp exam, you know, you're given a short period of time, you know, you're pouring your heart out, you know, you're giving a lot of citations. Then after a while, then I started thinking, let me just write a letter to one of my idols. And yeah, that took like two months to write. <laughs> and I'm still feeling quite bad about myself. And I'm saying, you know, how, how on earth, how can this person even think whether this letter that he receives is worthy of reading? So I'm not even at that level. That's what I was thinking. I know exactly what you mean uh, about feeling that. I felt it. I think everybody has felt it. And I think it's what it's, uh, it's and what and, and Bill, what, what are some of the common mistakes or common things that the junior faculty, the young scholars do that you say, oh, you shouldn't be doing that? Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, some things, I mean, one thing that, and I'm guilty of this myself. So it's, you know, don't do, do what I say, not what I do is, you know, overextending yourself. Uh, you know, so working on too many things in too many disparate areas. I think it, as academics, uh, we, we're interested in learning stuff. And so we want to you know, do all kinds of different things. And, but there's a trade-off be, you know, between scope and you know, depth. And, and, and you need to have depth to get things published and to work through the process. And so, so one thing is you know, to focus. Uh, another thing that I see is you know, people junior scholars being too critical and too much of a perceptionist or sorry, perfectionist that they're not willing to release projects uh, to, you know, to journals to get reviews. Uh, and it's, but at the same time, you know, some, there's a few that just release them too soon too. You need to, you need to work, get some informal feedback first. But I think you know, mm -hmm. there is, you know, I've, I've seen people who are just so, so perfectionist and so scared of getting a rejection letter, which you know everybody's getting them. I still get them all the time. Uh, uh, that you know uh, that they don't want to release anything, and I think you just you need to you need to get over that hurdle and just send it out there at some point. You know, at some point, you need to just send it out and get the get the feedback from the the editor and the reviewers and, and work from there. And I've also noticed you know sometimes I'm not the best judge of my work. I've had things published that I thought were not as you know moving or not as you know, advancing the literature has things that got rejected right away and so 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 i think you know sometimes you know, getting some friendly feedback can help as well sure. and and should be a, a required part of the process so. which paper uh, or book or uh, work uh, is your baby the, the most 
favorite one, the one that you love the most? That's, that's a tough question. Uh, I, mean, we, I just published a book, an edited book with Sam Park and Alvaro Cuervo-Bazura uh, on emerging market multinationals and their strategic capabilities. Mm -hmm. I think now this may be a recency effect, but I think you know this one, uh, we coordinated at a network of uh, scholars in 12 different countries, 12 different emerging markets. Uh, you know, and in each emerging market, you know, the local scholars, you know, interviewed CEOs and top managers of firms in their market. And so we ended up with a, a set of 72 uh, emerging market firms that, you know, with, with interview data in the book across, you know, the 12 markets. And I think, I think you know, uh, just the accomplishment of coordinating the network itself and getting this book out, I think was, you know, a, a pretty cool thing. I also think, you know, it, it has very you know, in-depth, you know, kind of you know, advice on you know which which capabilities you know, uh, the top leaders of these companies saw as strategic, and so I think it's you know I think it, it's moving the field forward, and, and it was just you know kind of a pleasure of a project to get through, and so you know, if I had to pick one right now, and again there may be a recency effect since it was just published, but that would probably be it. Perfect. Um... Congratulations on the book as well. Oh, thank uh, you. Bill, uh, last question for the sake of time. Uh, what is one question that I should have asked about Evan? Uh, I think a question, and again, it's sort of in the last area, is you know, how does a young scholar develop a professional network? Mm. I think you know, uh, more and more, but even from the beginning, you know, international business topics, this uh, require a multi-dimensional skill set. Uh, uh, you know, it's very, very, uh, relatively rare now that you're going to see a sole authored paper. Uh, almost all pa papers are co-authored, and and a big reason for this is that you know IB topics you need knowledge on different methods. Often you need knowledge on different. You know, they're combining different disciplines, so you might need somebody who's a knowledge on one topic and then somebody on another topic. And it's hard for one person to learn all that themselves. And so I think, you know, uh, developing a network of scholars that you can work with really is important for a research career. Uh, you can't do it all by yourself. Uh, and so you know, I've been very fortunate to work with you know, fantastic co-authors all throughout my career. And you know, many, you know, we've done multiple papers together. Uh, and, you know, I think this is you know, something that needs to be cultivated and it should start, you know, early on. It should start, you know, as a PhD student, both within your university by developing relationships with your other other PhD students in the program. Mm -hmm. You know, several people I am still working with, I was working with as a doctoral student, uh, and then, but also you should be going to conferences and attending doctoral consortium, and you know, meeting people, you know, in the field, that, people that use papers you've read. Uh, you know, it's, it's nice to know that they're real people and realize, you know, these are real people just like me and, you know, and, you know, and these are people I can aspire to be like, uh, because, you know, uh, and learning their stories because this gives you help, uh, in doing that. And, and they can provide really good mentorship too. you know, though these people tend to be very generous with their time in this field. You know, it's people treat, you know, international business as a community of, you know, scholars and, you know, work together for a common goal. And so, I find, you know, when I have questions, if I ask people, they're very generous with their time and providing answers. And, and I think you know, young scholars need to keep this in mind. 
Thank you so much, Bill, for this great interview. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill Goss. Again, I appreciate all your efforts organizing this. And, you know, I'm very honored to be part of this, you know, this group of scholars, you know, in this series. Thank you. Thank you.